Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. since January. And as we kind of have marched through things, we've seen kind of a, a flow, a cycle of things. And uh, we kind of would lay the format out in front of you on this slide here. Uh, as we talk about the structure of John's gospel, we're in John chapter 5 this morning, which puts a smack in the middle of John chapter 1 through 12, the, the book of signs, this first half of the book of John. And we went through the introduction. We went through the Cana cycle, which we finished last week. And this uh, Sunday, we're actually starting into uh, chapter 5, which initiates what we call the festival cycle. And what this means is that there are passages marked by Jesus' attendance of a festival. We know for sure that he at least ten, attends two different Passovers, if not three, uh, during this cycle. So this probably represents some three, two, two and a half to three years of ministry in the life of Jesus. And we, we kind of find ourselves pushing to the back half of this first cycle of the book of signs. As we kind of go forward then, we see uh, we're here this morning in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Here's our big idea. Jesus' lordship is better than our lore and our law-keeping. You can see I tapped into my history as a Baptist, right? I got all the L's lined up perfectly, and you're saying, what the heck is lore? I don't know. I don't know. I wonder this morning if you're like me. I wonder if you're watching the world with one eye on the world and, and you're thinking about all of the things that seem to be unraveling at the moment. We see a war that we didn't expect to happen. We see the rise of inflation. We see uh, jobs and everything else going crazy. We feel like our world is just unraveling. In the midst of this, we have legitimate suffering that takes place. We have, uh, you know, disease and heartache and, and joblessness and all of these things. We have legitimate heartache in front of us. And we wonder, how in the world are these things going to be solved? Right? How are these things going to find resolution? If God is a good God who kind of spun the world into existence, shouldn't we expect that this thing should kind of come to a happy ending of sorts? Shouldn't we expect that this thing will kind of find its balance once again? This morning we're invited into a passage in which Jesus interacts with someone who's in the midst of deep need, 38 years of paralysis. We're also invited to investigate our need to consider the places we have need. And with that in mind, we see that Jesus' lordship is better than the folklore we might buy into. It's better than our self-righteous law-keeping. What God is inviting us to this morning in this passage is nothing short of submission to the sovereign God and creator, Jesus himself. So I want to dive into our passage this morning. We're going to find three different emphases. In verses 1 through 9, which we just read, we're going to see that Jesus is better than our Lord, better than our stories, better than our kind of homespun stories about how life should be. Secondly, in verses 9 through 15, we're going to see that Jesus is better than law-keeping. 
He's better than these Sabbath keepers that we're going to run into here in our passage in John chapter 5. And finally, verses 16 through 18, we're going to unequivocally see the lordship of Jesus affirmed in our passage here this morning. And so I'm inviting you with me as we kind of investigate. Let's go back to John chapter 5, verse 1, and carry this question into our text this morning. See, it starts here that Jesus is better than our Lord in John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a great feast. Of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Do we kind of get the introduction, the lay of the land, as it were? And it starts off with Jesus's movement up from Capernaum, supposedly up to Jerusalem. And he's attending specifically for these feasts. And uh, there's, if you know the Jewish calendar, there were multiple feasts laid out for them in places like Leviticus 23 that they were supposed to go and celebrate together. And so Jesus goes up for the feast and he's celebrating there. And it describes that he enters through this sheep gate on the north side of Jerusalem and he comes to this pool called Bethesda. Now Bethesda as a word means house of grace or house of mercy or something along those lines. And what we found there is these five structures kind of put up to kind of guard these um, sick people, these paralyzed people or lame people or blind people or whatever they were from the sun. And as it were, there was a pool there uh, that seemed like all of these people were trying to get to. Now, verse four is interesting. I invite you just to go ahead and look at your Bible and see if there is a verse four, because some of us, as we have the ESV, verse four just kind of slices it out of there or the ESV slices it out of there. Or if you have an NIV or an NASB Bible, you might have a verse four. Well, what is this all about? See, what's happening here in our text is that as we've kind of accumulated different versions of the Bible, and we uh, archaeologically have dug up different manuscripts and those kind of things, the earliest manuscripts don't contain verse four. So most, most scholars are going to come along and say that this was an addition by a scribe or someone else along the way, Right? This is kind of, verse 4 was kind of added in. Now, before you kind of get all up tight about things, your scriptures are still reliable. Uh, that verse doesn't change anything about the meaning of our text this morning. In fact, we'll even kind of talk about it here. Verse 4 uh, highlights exactly why this man was gathering at this pool. Because it tells us, uh, as the footnote says, that uh, the Lord, an angel of the Lord would come and stir up these waters, supposedly, and that the first person in after the angel stirred up these waters would receive healing. And that's kind of just the folklore of the day. They had this understanding that this angel would stir up the waters, and so the first person in would find himself healed. And so this paralyzed man will dis- uh, discuss with us at, through the text this morning exactly how he couldn't get to there uh, to the pool in the right amount of time, right? And so in verses 5 through 9, we see that Jesus heals them. Look at verse 5 with me. One man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Sounds like a foolish question to us, doesn't it? Do you like being paralyzed? Is that fun? 
it's, we'll kind of dig into this in just a second. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. And when the water is stirred, uh, and while I am going there, someone else, another, steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. What's happening here? Jesus introduces us to this man who remains nameless, who's been paralyzed for some 38 years. He's been stuck in this situation. Imagine for yourself, you're never, never able to get up and go somewhere on your own. You're always reliant upon someone else to lift you and carry you somewhere. And this man, uh, Jesus approaches him. Now, imagine Jesus walks into this pool where, that is filled with blind and lame and deaf people, and, and he finds this one man, and he asks him this question, do you want to be healed? And that healed word is interesting. There's a word that's used some 44 times to describe healing in the New Testament. And that word is therapeuo. You can hear how we get the word therapy from that word. That is not the word that is used here. The word that is used here is hygies. I'm totally botching that. So if any of you are Greek scholars out there, just don't kill me, right? That word is only used 14 times in the New Testament. Four of its usages are here in our passage this morning. And what that word actually denotes is this idea of being whole or sound or complete. And so Jesus is approaching this man and saying, do you want to be holy? whole? Excuse me. Do you want to be full or complete? Do you want this, this idea of being uh, put together? It, it reminds us of other places in, in the book of John where Jesus approaches someone with a double meaning about what he's saying to them. Now, a few weeks ago when Ryan preached in John chapter 4, he approaches a woman at a well. and He says, I would give you water for eternal life. Right? I, there's a double meaning. There's water, and then there's a spiritual meaning underneath it. Later on in John chapter 6, he's going to say that he is the bread of life. There's bread that's given to them as he feeds 5,000 men and women. But there's the deeper reality of his life as the bread that truly sustains. And so he approaches this man, and he says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be whole. Now, our disabled man is, is thinking only about this process in verse 7, and he's saying, I can't get up fast enough. I can't get to the front of the line, and so I'm kind of limited. I can't do these things to kind of get myself to this place of healing. So Jesus stops him, and in verse 8, he gives him three commands. Get up. Take up your bed. Walk. Jesus commands this man to do something that he is naturally incapable of doing. But by Jesus' supernatural ability, this man is enabled to do the impossible. Now just think about this, that we say this all the time. Jesus sometimes asks us to do things that we would say are naturally impossible we look at our life and we say, I cannot stop lying. I cannot stop lusting. I cannot stop doing this. But we look at those things and through his supernatural ability, namely the resurrection we've seen, received in Jesus Christ, we are able to do those things we were naturally incapable of doing. See, God never calls us to do something that he will not enable us to do. And this is the case with this man here in John chapter 5. When we consider what this is like 38 years 
being reliant upon someone else. 38 years of lying there, waiting for the waters to be stirred, scrambling to try to get into them. 38 years of, of just dysfunction. And finally, this man who you've never talked to before tells you to get up, take up your mat, and walk. This is exactly what happens in verse 9. Notice the commands given in verse 8 are immediately fulfilled in verse 9. He is healed. He takes up his mat. He begins walking. See, we see this, and we see that Jesus' power is better than the folklore that this man wanted to believe was true. It's better than the stories that were there in John chapter 5. It was better than these angels of the Lord stirring up the waters and him scrambling to try and get himself in the right place at the right time. There's this kind of showdown of belief here between the power of Jesus and the folklore that this man believed in. He was absolutely convinced of this myth's truth, wasn't he? Such that he came here regularly scrambled to try and find his way to the waters in time. And before we point fingers and say, how foolish, how foolish this man is. We do this too, don't we? See, we're often told that taking care of our bodies will prolong our life. We invest our dollars and our energy and these workout routines and these health bars and all these other things that sometimes aren't very healthy. There really isn't a way of stopping the aging process, is there? And really, the miracles of our science have only extended the worst years of our existence. Right? He thought it was funny. Thanks, Jason. We're told that sexual freedom is the means to a fulfilled life. Right? We get that message all the time. The value that I have is expressed in my constant sexuality. And yet, our society is more depressed and more suicidal than it has ever been in the last hundred years. I tend to think those two things are linked. We're told that being self-actualized, that is reaching our full potential, is the pinnacle of human fulfillment. We're told that uh, psychologically through the likes of Maslow and Rogers. We're told it by Oprah Winfrey, right? That when you actually realize your full potential, that's the, the pinnacle of achievement. That's when you should feel most satisfied in yourself. And yet we're told before God that our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And the truth about those pinnacles of fulfillment is they're just an ever-escaping desire for us. The one time we fulfill something, one time we reach our goal, there's always another goal to be set, another desire to be fulfilled, isn't there? See, our modern folklore about our healing, our spiritual infirmities is all wrong person of the 21st century tends to think that his problems have a, a natural solution bound up in this kind of earth, right? We tend to turn our eyes to solutions. When we get sickness, we go to see a doctor. When we uh, feel like our mind is kind of askew, we go to see a therapist. When we uh, feel like we, we don't have enough money, we turn to Dave Ramsey. When we feel like we don't have this, we turn to some other solution. And there's always something being provided for us that's a natural solution in this world. But notice for our 
man this morning that true healing doesn't come until Jesus shows up. This man needed a divine interaction, and, and so do we. It's a picture of humanity worth noting. In our fallen condition, we are like the invalid beside the pool, waiting for the waters to be stirred, but never able to get into the pool. Isn't that who we are? And if that weren't bad news, I have more bad news for you with a smile on my face. It's not just that our folklore doesn't add up and that our homemade remedies about how to make ourselves well don't add up. It's that even when God spoke to us, we messed that up too. <laughs> We're a mess. And when we turn to the next section of our text this morning in John 5, verses 9 through 15, we're going to see those people who took the words of God and twisted the words of God and found themselves alienated from God. So look with me at John 5. I'm going to read verse 9 all the way through verse 15. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So when the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him, in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And this man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. See, the Pharisees uh, see this man kind of walking through the temple proper, as it were, and, and they kind of confront him saying, Hey, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. Don't you know this is law-breaking, right? And we might stop and just say, okay, for just a second, let's talk about what is the Sabbath? What is this idea? Why is it so bad that you can't carry a mat on the Sabbath? See, the Sabbath was this idea that God had worked for six days, and then on the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, God tells us that he rested from his work. But if we go back to Genesis 1:31, we see a tie. We see that God looked at his creation and that he saw it was very good. And so he then rests in the goodness of his creation. And later on, in, in books like Leviticus and Exodus, he actually imposes upon his people that every seventh day they should cease from their work. They should not continue in the pattern of their occupation. As we read places like Carson and other commentators, they're going to tell us that what this was intended to do was for a, a carpenter to start do, stop doing carpentry on, on Saturdays, on the Sabbath, and for a, uh, a, law, a lawyer to stop doing law work on Saturdays. They, you were supposed to stop your occupational work for a given day, and not necessarily a prohibition on all kinds of work. But this is what happens. And then later on, uh, in the New Testament, uh, the Bible describes for us a Sabbath rest that comes to us through Jesus, that we set aside our works of trying to appease and please God through our good efforts, and instead, by faith, we trust that God 
has done a good work for us, right? See, this is the Sabbath. But what this man is doing is clearly in violation of the Sabbath as they saw it. This was strictly forbidden. In fact, there are passages in Jeremiah 17 and Nehemiah chapter 13 that describe that we shouldn't carry a load on the Sabbath. And so this man is in, in trouble. It's funny to note that this man who had been healed for, by a, a person after having 38 years of paralysis is now acting, as they say, unlawfully in verse 10. Look at how he defends himself in verse 11. He answered them, the man who healed me, that man, the one who healed me, he said to me, take up your bed and walk. See, this man didn't even know who Jesus was. In verse 13, Jesus withdrew so quickly that this man couldn't even uh, ask Jesus about his identity, about who he was or, or what he was about. But in verses 14 through 15, we see that Jesus kind of comes back and reconnects with them. Look at what verse 14 says. See, Jesus speaking to this man. He says, see, you are well. You're whole. You're complete. You're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Notice what Jesus does. He highlights his wholeness. You're well. You've been made well, whole, complete. You've found this thing now. Through my words, you're brought to health and completeness. He commands his obedience. He goes, sin no more. And then finally, he shows him the consequence of this lack of sin or, or the possibility of disobedience, that nothing worse may happen to you. See, it's from this that we might understand that this man had originally uh, kind of contracted his paralysis through some sinful action in his past. Uh, we might understand that he had done something wrong because Jesus is specifically interacting with him about no longer sinning. And by the way, this comes back up in John chapter 9 when Jesus' disciples approach him and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents were, had sinned, but rather that the glory of God might be shown. See, this man may have introduced his sin through his own actions where it would be held in contrast with John chapter 9. See, the truth is that the consequence of human sinfulness is, is far worse than the potential of disability, though. Isn't that what Jesus is warning him of? He's saying, hey, go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. See, the worst thing than being paralyzed for 38 years is facing judgment from God. The worst thing than being stuck on a mat for nearly half of your life or three quarters of your life is to face an eternity separate from God. Jesus is giving this warning. Now, verse 15 does something so interesting. Here's this man who's received healing. He's seen the, the lordship of Jesus Christ on display. But as verse 15, he becomes a turncoat. And he goes and he speaks to the Pharisees. In case we were wondering where this man standing with Jesus was, he shows us. He goes exactly to the Jews, the authorities, and he reports that Jesus is the one who had healed him. confuses us, right? We, we see all kinds of healings throughout the Gospels, and most of them end in belief. But this man doesn't seem to be believing at all. Now, the natural consequence of this comes up in verses 16 through 18. And so we've seen that Jesus is, is better than lore. 
and now he's better than law-keeping. Their law-keeping doesn't bring blessing, does it? God gave Sabbath law for a reason. God gave the Sabbath for a reason. It was a day for us to cease from our labor. And just as he rested to enjoy his very good creation, that God rested on the seventh day, we too should rest and enjoy his work. Hebrews 4 says this, For whoever has entered God's rest also has rested from his works, as God did from his. The the point is is that once you and I come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we stop trying to to please God or appease God with our good works. We recognize that because we're recipients of grace, we naturally want to do those things, but we don't have to appease God any longer. These Jews, they've so twisted the Sabbath. What we see in John 5 was not God's intention for the Sabbath at all. Notice that this irony stands out, that in keeping the Sabbath, these Jews were missing the very good thing that God was doing in their midst. They were so intent on keeping the Sabbath that they were about to put the Sabbath keeper, the Sabbath, uh, the Lord of the Sabbath, excuse me, to his death. These people were so law-oriented that they had missed the Messiah. Underneath this whole orientation to the Sabbath is this wrong idea that we can be good enough for God. These men were just trying to keep these laws to such an extent that that they would appease God, that they would be good enough to be in God's presence. And the problem with that is that Paul tells us that we can't do that. Paul tells us things like Romans chapter 3, he says, By works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No one will be pronounced righteous based upon their law-keeping and their good works. The truth is, you can't help enough old ladies cross the street. You can't put away your sins to such an extent that you're going to appease God somehow. Romans 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to make God pleased with us. And so in our text this morning, it's not just that the folklore fails, it's that the law-keeping fails. So we turn to John 5, verses 16 through 18, and we find some resolution here. First, we see two different consequences for the life of Jesus. Read with me in verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself Equal with God. You see the two consequences there? Jesus receives persecution because he's breaking Sabbath law as Lord of the Sabbath. He's, they're trying to put him to death because he claims equality with God, which happens to be a true thing. See, John gives us these two responses by the Pharisees, one in verse 16 and one in verse 18. First is just vague persecution, that they're kind of standing opposite of Jesus, and these people with all the power and authority are making the life of this carpenter's son very difficult. 
But it pushes beyond that in verse 18 when they hear that he's claiming equality with God. They say, this man must die. They seek to put him to death because he claims equality with God. Now notice Jesus' defense in verse 17. I think this is the climax, the culmination of this passage. He says this, my father is working until now. My father is working until now. He didn't stop at day six. He put it down for day seven, but he picked it back up, and he's been working ever since. God is still working in this world. He doesn't stop working on the Sabbath. He continues to sustain this globe. Every atom, every molecule is held together by the glory of God. My father is working until now. Christian, do you believe this? In the midst of all the chaos of our world, do you believe that the father is working until now? It's not just the father. Look what Jesus says. He says, and I am working. You can't pin me down on the Sabbath because I'm working like my father worked. Praise God that Jesus didn't hang up his work boots. That he didn't take off his work gloves, as it were, and set himself down at the right hand of the Father and said, well, that was fun, I'm done. See, Jesus answers the Pharisees' questions about the Sabbath with a full-throated claim to equality with God. Yes, God rested on the seventh day, but according to Jesus, he's been at work ever since. And because Jesus is the Son of God, he gets to dictate what does or doesn't happen on the Sabbath. That's the message he's giving these men. In fact, he's later told them in Matthew chapter 12 that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And all of this is testified to by this miraculous healing of this man 38 years on a mat. It's worth noting this morning that Jesus' claim to deity would lead directly to his death. It's like we can draw a string here between John chapter 5, where Jesus claims himself equal with the Father before these religious elites. And we can put the other end of the string in John chapter 19, where he stands before Pilate and he claims that he's the king of the Jews. John draws a direct connection between these two things for us. The recognition is that when Jesus told us that he was God's son, it was writing his own death certificate. The sinful hearts of those around him and our own sinful hearts would naturally reject him to the point of putting the son of God on a cross. And it's by God's infinite wisdom that this is how God would bring us true rest. By Jesus' death and resurrection, he paid the full price of our sinfulness so that you and I don't have to do the dog chasing its tail, the rat on the wheel of constantly trying to fulfill the law. He has given us direct access to the Father and thereby given us True Sabbath rest. Praise God. Here's the truth this morning. 
that you and I can put in our pocket and take with us. The sovereign God of the universe is still working. Sovereign God of the universe is still working. How do I understand inflation, war, disease, famine? Sovereign God of the universe is still working. Someday, he will set up his kingdom, bring about a true Sabbath rest for his people in Christ. Christian, you need to know, and I need to know, that God himself is still working. Notably, what his work is to do today is to exalt the person of Jesus Christ, to make him known amongst every tribe and tongue and nation, to raise up, to exalt the name of Jesus Christ so that all of us bow, so that we speak with our mouths about the Lordship of Christ, that we bow our knees so that Jesus is exalted in all the earth. That's the work that God is doing right now. And you and I, we're called to participate. We vocalize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We, we tell our friends and neighbors and relatives. We uh, come into the kingdom purpose. We serve in different areas of the church. We are invited into this work that God is doing. And so we might ask this question, God, what in the world are you doing in the midst of wars and famine and inflation and everything else while this world unravels? What are you doing? Rest assured Christian. God always has been and always will be exalting his name by exalting Jesus Christ. And now in this age, he's magnifying the grace provided in Jesus, and he's actively beckoning all sinners to come to him, all who are weary to find rest in his yoke. To you and I, participate in this work God is doing as servants, as witnesses. You and I take part in this work by God's gracious design. He's not just working as a one-man working wrecking crew, right? God himself has redeemed us and restored us to invite us into his purpose. Right now, the sovereign God of the universe beckons you and I to participate in what he is doing in this world. So here's the question I have for you. What would your life look like? What would your life look like if you spent your day concerned with what God might be doing in our world? What would your life look like if you spent your day concerned about the things that God was doing in this world? If we took our eyes off of ourselves, if we took our eyes off of our kids and our families for just a moment to see what God is doing in the midst of this world, how would it change? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give us a sense of what you're doing in the world. We admit our confusion. Sometimes we get turned around. Our hearts love the wrong things. Sometimes we believe too much in our own folklore. We think that we can keep your laws to make you pleased with us. 
truthfully this morning, we take rest that you're working. We step aside from our work and trust and delight that you are doing what you seek to accomplish. And I'm reminded of your words from Isaiah. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, making it spring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall your word be. It doesn't return to you empty. So Lord, we pray that your word would accomplish its purpose in us and accomplish its purpose in the world. And we wait for that day when Jesus will come and rule and reign over us again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.